Good morning, folks. Good morning. Thank you so much for braving this weather and enabling us to continue our streak. I was telling someone this morning, 24 years we've never canceled a worship service because of a snowstorm. So some of you have made it out. Some of you live close. Some are a little further away. And we have some guests from some other churches that weren't able to hold their services today. We still have announcements. There's a baby shower this afternoon for Samara Midget. Her husband Jim is one of our associate pastors. And the organizers decided to change the time from 3, I think, to 1.30, thinking they would beat the storm, but they, they didn't they actually failed on that one. But they're still going to go ahead at 1.30 with that shower. And then, please remember next, uh, or this coming Saturday at 5 o'clock, there's a potluck meal here at the church for anyone willing to participate. And then for those of you who've committed to our congregation and our members, our annual meeting is February 24th at 12.30. Every effective leader must have the courage to cope with opposition. And would you bow with me as we lead into God's Word today. Father, we just thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your family, for enabling us to have the faith that we do in you that provides us with the security that we need to know that our sins are forgiven, that you have taken care of them through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that now as a result of that, we will be in eternity with you. But Father, we're asking that you guide us here this morning as we continue to look into your book of Luke, as we look at the life of Jesus and see how his life can inspire us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The parents need to have the courage to say no to their children and deal with temper tantrums and the pouting that they will sometimes give us. And we do that so that the children don't end up in control of the family. The school teacher who dares to challenge students has to have courage to endure criticism from the students and also from the parents of those students who sometimes don't actually like you challenging your, their children that much. The business person who wants to lead the company to be the best that it can be will be opposed by those who don't share that vision or by those who are actually jealous of how well that company is working. And even the most effective political leaders, I know our political leaders have uh, a tough time, but the ones who courageously take a stand on the issues and rise above the critics, they are the most effective ones. In Luke 6, verse 26, Jesus said, You are in for trouble when everyone says good things about you. That is what your own people said about those prophets who told lies. So if everybody speaks well of you all the time, that's actually not a good thing. That means that you're not actually taking a stand. You're compromising the truth. You're giving in to peer pressure. And a good leader knows that you can't please everybody all the time. My grandfather in this cartoon that I read was lovingly placing his grandson on his donkey and they were going into town. And they traveled for a while, and then someone said, look at that young grandson there. He's making that old man walk. So then the grandfather got on the donkey, and his grandson started to walk. 
And they traveled along for a while until someone said, well, well, look at that old man making that boy walk. So then he, they, got, they both got onto the donkey. And they traveled along for a while until they heard someone say, look at those foolish people. They have a donkey and neither one of them are riding on it. So then they both got on the donkey. And they traveled along like that for a while until they heard someone say, look at those people. Like, they're going to break that donkey's back. They're abusing that donkey. So in the next little cartoon, you see the father or grandfather and the grandson walking along and they're carrying the donkey. They just were faced with criticism from all sides. There's no way that you can please everybody. And anyone who feels called to lead, whether it's a grandfather or whether it's someone who's a colonel in the army, must have the courage to cope with criticism and deal with antagonists. And Jesus Christ was the most dynamic leader that ever lived, and he was a perfect model of servant leadership, but he was under constant ferocious attack from his critics. So this morning we're going to look at those unjustified attacks that Jesus endured, and I hope that we'll be instructed and inspired by observing his courageous response to those antagonists. So first of all, we see him responding to these people that were too rigid. So in chapter 5 of Luke is where we're beginning, verse 33. Some people said to Jesus, John's followers often pray and go without eating, and so do the followers of the Pharisees. But your disciples never go without eating or drinking. And there was a religious sect of the Jews called the Pharisees, and they had reduced their faith to this rigid set of rules and regulations. And the Old Testament required fasting, but it was just once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then it was voluntary at other times. And it was usually when people were going through an extreme time of grief, or maybe it was repentance over what they were doing in their lives, and they would fast. But the stricter Jews had begun to equate fasting with spirituality. And they insisted on this rigid schedule. And they decided that every Thursday from sunup to sundown would be a day of fasting. And they felt that they were more spiritual because of that. And they made sure that other people would notice them when they were fasting. Well, their faces were so somber and they walked around like they didn't have enough strength to make another step. But it was all to appear more spiritual. And then their prayers, their prayers actually became ritualistic. They'd stop whatever they were doing at noon and at 3 and at 5 o'clock every day to say the same repeated prayers. And later on in Luke, we actually read about the, a Pharisee going into the temple to pray. And he's boasting about himself. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe or a tenth of my income. So praying and fasting and tithing is good. Like we all need to do that. But these guys were making it an actual sign of their spirituality, which it wasn't. And there are some today for whom spirituality is simply going through rituals. It's going through the same ritual every week. They say the same prayers without paying any attention. And they feel that they've done their duty. And they'll say things like, 
Like, it didn't seem like Easter because we didn't observe Lent. Or it, it didn't seem like a worship service because we didn't all quote the Lord's Prayer together. Just do it by rote, without thinking. So when Jesus and his disciples didn't fast the same way as the disciples of John the Baptist, then their spirituality came into question. But Jesus courageously confronted them, and he told them that they need to celebrate his presence. So in verse 34, Jesus told them, The friends of a bridegroom don't go without eating while he is still with them. But the time will come when he will be taken from them. Then they will go without eating. Now let's say that you went to a wedding. And then you follow that up with the reception. And you're kind of hungry. And then you get there and you notice that there's no food or drink on the tables. And then after a while the father of the bride stands up and he says, this is going to be a different way. We're not going to eat any food, but we're going to fast and pray. We're going to sit in a circle and we're going to pray for this young couple. Now, how would you react to that? Your first reaction might be, oh, I don't like this. I can pray for them. I can fast at any time, but I'm hungry right now. Or maybe you might say, this is nice. But Jesus said, I am the bridegroom. And when I am with my followers, they will celebrate and be glad. So a wedding is a time for celebration. It is a time to eat. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to dance. Like I never danced much as a child or a teenager. But now it seems like every wedding I perform, they have the dance afterward. And my family is there. And we've become the life of the dances. And I had a wedding in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And we had to leave because I had to get home to speak on Sunday morning, and they said, no, no, don't dance, or don't go, you Nicholson's are the only ones that are up there dancing and having fun. So there is a time to do that, there is a time to celebrate, and Jesus said that now is the time while I am here with my followers. But then he said there will come a time when fasting is appropriate, and that is when I'm gone back to heaven. But when he was present with his disciples, they weren't somberly fasting. They were rejoicing because they were in the presence of the bridegroom. That God wants so much more out of us than just going through rigid tradition. He wants us to have a joyous relationship. And spiritual traditions are okay, but they kind of serve to remind us of the presence of God and to move us into a deeper relationship. But God wants more out of that. He wants more than our road prayers. He wants more than automatic church attendance and just ritualistic giving. He wants us to be in communication with Him, to feel His presence, to enjoy a personal relationship with Him on a daily basis. Like way back in the Old Testament, in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God said, I, the Lord, hate and despise your religious celebrations and your times of worship. I won't accept your offerings or animal sacrifices, not even your very best. No more of your noisy songs. I won't listen when you play your harps. And we ask, why wouldn't he do that? He wouldn't accept it because they were committing spiritual adultery while they were going through the ritual of worship. Their lives weren't matching up to the way they were celebrating. 
It takes courage to actually lead a celebration because there are always going to be people that don't want to celebrate with you. There's a great example that Jesus gave when he told the parable about the prodigal son. This man had two sons, and the, the youngest son asked for his inheritance while his dad was still alive. And then he went off, and he wasted all that money in a terrible life. And when it was all gone, he finally decided to repent and go back to his father. And then this is what the father said. Hurry and bring the best clothes and put them on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Get the best calf and prepare it so we can eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and has now come back to life. He was lost and has now been found. And they began to celebrate. The older son had been out in the field. But when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants over and asked, like, what's going on here? And the servant answered, Your brother has come home safe and sound, and your father ordered us to kill the best calf. The older brother got so angry that he would not even go into the house. His father came out and begged him to go in. But he said to his father, For years I have worked for you like a slave, and have always obeyed you, but you never even gave me a little goat so that I could have a dinner for my friends. There are always rigid people on the fringe that are mumbling and complaining and spreading gloom and doom. But good leaders have the courage to be joyful and optimistic, even though there may be those who don't want to join in. So when Jesus is involved, there's going to be joy, there's going to be hope, there's going to be laughter, there's going to be love. And then you'll notice that Jesus had the courage to be flexible when others were inflexible. He tried to actually introduce change. And he tells two parables about the necessity for change. And the first one is in verse 36. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. So it, it wouldn't make sense to take a new piece of clothing and cut a piece out of that to then take it and put a patch on an older piece of clothing. Now I think teenagers do that all the time as you see patches and rips and tears in their pants. But if you do that, when you wash that old piece of clothing, that patch is going to shrink back and then it would tear the old garment. The second parable was about putting new wine into old wineskins. So we pick up in verse 37. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. The new wine would swell and burst the old skins. Then the wine would be lost and the skins would be ruined. New wine must be put only into new wineskins. No one wants new wine after drinking old wine. They say the old wine is better. Back in New Testament days, wine was stored in leather bottles. And if grape juice was poured into an old brittle bottle, then when it fermented and the gases caused it to expand, it would break or tear the old bottles. The bottles would be ruined and the wine would be wasted. Well, the point Jesus was making was that he was bringing a new message. And they were going to need some new wine bottles in order to accept that message 
They were going to have to get rid of those old bottles, and they were going to have to be more elastic in their thinking. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 actually illustrate this point. Like one Sabbath, when Jesus and his disciples were walking through some wheat fields, the disciples picked some wheat. They rubbed the husks off with their hands and started eating the grain. Some Pharisees said, But why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. Like, have you ever seen characters in TV programs? Don't do that. And that's basically the way these Pharisees were. You know, the Jews had a law that said that any grain that was growing along a path, they were actually permitted to reach out and pick that grain. Anything that they could reach, they couldn't use a sickle, which was uh, too old for cutting the grain. But anything that they could reach while they were walking along that path was fine for them to take. And that law was put in place because of the people who were less fortunate and it was an opportunity for them to get some grain so they could then make some bread out of it. And in the Ten Commandments, God had simply said, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But the Pharisees, they added dozens of legalistic rules to that. You couldn't catch a fish. You couldn't kill an animal. You couldn't go to war. You couldn't have relations with your spouse. You couldn't draw water. You couldn't take a trip or even plan a trip. You couldn't cook a meal. And the list of rules went on and on. So here were Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field on the Sabbath day, and his disciples picked some of that grain. So they weren't being criticized for actually stealing grain, because that was okay. They were being criticized because they violated one of the rules that the Pharisees had made themselves. By plucking that grain and rubbing it between their hands and eating it, the disciples were guilty of eating a meal on the Sabbath. And the only thing they were allowed to eat on the Sabbath was food that they actually prepared the day before. So the Pharisees are saying, why are you doing what isn't lawful on the Sabbath? And it's amazing how that carried over into Christianity. And years ago, you'd hear stories. And one I heard was about a pastor who was going to church on a winter Sunday morning. And he had to cross the river to get to the church. And the bridge was out. So he actually skated across on the ice and got to church on time. But then the leaders of the church were in an uproar. Like, you can't skate on Sunday. So they didn't know what they were going to do about it. And the pastor said it was either skate across on the ice or not get here at all. So then they started to think about it. What are we going to do? We've got this amazing dilemma to deal with here. And finally, one of them asked, okay, did you enjoy skating? And he said, well, no, I didn't. Okay, it's all right then. But that's the way, and that's how inflexible these Pharisees were. And Jesus courageously responded to their legalism with a history lesson on the need for flexibility. And so in Luke 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus answered, You surely have read what David did when he and his followers were hungry. He went into the house of God and took the sacred loaves of bread that only priests were supposed to eat. And he not only ate some himself, but even gave some to his followers. Now this is an amazing move on Jesus' part. He brings David into the picture. 
David is the all-time hero of the Jews. And he uses an example here. And he's saying, like, don't you remember back when King David was running from King Saul? He was running for his life. And he and his men didn't have any food. They went into the tabernacle, the place of worship. And there was this table there, the table of showbread, that the priest would put 12 loaves of bread on at the start of each week. Each loaf of bread symbolized one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would eat from that throughout the week during communion. But then at the latter part of the week, if there was any bread left, only the priest could eat what was left. So David and his men were forced out of desperation to eat that bread. And his, they weren't condemned by God. And then Jesus said to them, and you guys didn't condemn them either. So why are you condemning my disciples now? It would be like driving through an intersection. And before you get to that intersection, the light changes to yellow. So you step on the gas a little bit, trying to get through before that red light comes up. And you're only halfway through the intersection, and the light changes to red. So you're starting to feel a little bad about that. But you look in your rearview mirror, and there's actually a guy behind you that followed you through that red light. So you relax a little bit until you see a police car coming from a side street. Lights are on, and he pulls you over. And it charges you with going through a red light. And you say, but why did you stop me? Like, why didn't you stop the guy behind me? He was more guilty than I was. And this is what was going on with these Pharisees that Jesus was trying to deal with. Like, why me? Why not the other guy? So he reasons with them. You didn't condemn David for doing what was unlawful according to the Bible. So why do you condemn my men for doing something that is just going against a law that you guys have made, a man-made law? And then he makes a very courageous statement that Jesus finished by saying in chapter 6, verse 5, the Son of Man is born over the Sabbath. So he's saying, I'm God's anointed king. I'm the one who created the world and created the Sabbath in the first place. I'm the one that has authority to do whatever I please with it. And you guys need to lighten up a little bit in your treatment of the Sabbath day. It's time for you to get some new wineskins. Anyone who wants to be an effective leader is expected to be opposed when they try to change old traditions. Like one man was the minister of a church where they quoted the Lord's Prayer by rote every Sunday. And he decided that he wanted to get something more meaningful in prayer involved. So he prayed from his heart a pastoral prayer, and then he left just a time of silence for people to pray on their own. And after the service, he was met by this irate couple at the door. And they said, but they've taken prayer out of the schools. And now you've taken prayer out of the church. Like, we're not going to be back. It's just unbelievable how people would react to that. But that prayer was what they thought prayer was really about. Just say something that we're quoting over and over again. That's prayer. So you change traditions and you get people upset. And we have a great slogan within the restoration movement from which, from which our church gets its roots. In doctrine or in teaching, there is unity. So when we're looking at God's Word and discovering how we are going to find salvation in Christ, then there's unity on those things in the Bible. But in opinion, 
there is liberty. So when people have opinions about something that's not in God's word, that there's going to be liberty. There will be freedom. But then the clincher in all of that is in all things love. Like love covers all of that over. But our minds can so easily become rigid like those old wineskins. They lose elasticity. And we can't accept any new ideas. Like I want to say how proud I am of this congregation for accepting new ideas and for being willing to have new wineskins. Because we've made a lot of changes. We haven't changed what we've taught. That is still going to come from God's Word. But we've changed the methodology over the past few years. We've even changed our building, made drastic changes as we renovated this building so that it wouldn't be a hindrance to our outreach. And it's great to see people willing to make those changes. But we're looking at a group of people that Jesus is dealing with that don't want to make those changes. Then Jesus had the courage to confront when others were threatening him. So in verses 6 and 7, on another Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in a Jewish meeting place, and a man with a crippled hand was there. So Pharisees and teachers of the law of Moses kept watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man. They did this because they wanted to accuse Jesus of doing something wrong. So these guys began to despise Jesus so much that they just spent all their time trying to find ways in which they could trip him up on one of their laws. They, anything that they could do to find him doing something wrong. So they watched every move, hoping that he'd make a mistake. And it's not easy to live under that kind of scrutiny. And it takes real courage to respond with grace in those situations. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus had a custom of going into the synagogue, and they knew that there was a man in that synagogue who had a disabled hand. Maybe they even planted the man in there. And I'll guarantee you that they weren't hoping that Jesus would heal the man so that he would have full use of that hand. No, it was more like this. It was, I hope he sees that guy and that he heals him. And then we can nail him. For the scriptures say that physicians can't work on the Sabbath. But they had no interest whatsoever in that man being restored. It was all about, let's catch Jesus in doing something that the Word of God says we aren't to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus disregarded the consequences. So picking up in verse 8, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he told the man to stand up where everyone could see him. And the man stood up. Now he could have easily waited until after the service was over, just kind of took the man aside, waited until everyone else was gone, maybe even gone into a back room and healed that man's hand. But he courageously confronted the matter head on. And then the nine, then Jesus asked, On the Sabbath, should we do good deeds or evil deeds? Should we save someone's life or destroy it? So reaching people is more important than non-biblical rules. And that sometimes demands an open confrontation. And then in ten, after he had looked around at everyone, he said, <coughs> Stretch out your hand. He did, and his bad hand became completely well. And have you ever noticed how Jesus always asked people to do something when he healed them? But the man who was paralyzed, like he said to him, hey, get up, like, roll up your bed, and, and walk out of here. 
And to this man with the disabled hand, he said, stick out your hand. But I'm sure that that man was going around like with his outer covering like over that. He didn't want to show people his hand. <coughs> a cousin of mine was out using his wood chopper and his three-year-old son was there with him and his older sons. And the little guy got his hand caught in the wood splitter lost three fingers and like for years after that like Sean Cole was always going around this sleeve way down over that hand he didn't want people to see it but the little guy is amazing he plays hockey he's a goaltender on a triple-a midget team on PEI it hasn't slowed him down any but there was that sense of shame about the hand and I'm sure that this man in that what was it called Synagogue, thank you. My wife's not here, so my son-in-law has to kick in. So in the synagogue that day was ashamed about his hand, and he had it covered. But when he placed that hand out for Jesus, it was completely restored. The reason that Jesus confronted people openly is because he wanted to show that caring for people was more important than following rules. Because those rules were man-made, they were given for the benefit of people, but it's not long before the ones who made the rules take on a sense of security and power in them. They basically go on a power trip. The rules end up taking precedent over people. Now sometimes we need to bend those rules slightly because they aren't scriptural rules. Remember, we aren't here to enforce rules, we are here to minister to people. So that last verse in Luke 6, 11, the teachers and the Pharisees were furious and started saying to each other, what can we do about Jesus? And you know what they were going to do. And this was just the beginning. And it continued all throughout his ministry. They were looking for ways, first of all, that they could trip him up. But then they were looking for ways in which they could get rid of him. And if you want to see courage, then you look at the cross where Jesus voluntarily, where he courageously, even joyfully went to endure the torture and pain for us. And he said, now if you're going to follow me, then you need to take up your cross daily. Like you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit. You're going to have to show a little bit of courage here if you're going to follow me. And he's the only one who can lead you to forgiveness. He's the only one who can lead you to eternal life. If we're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song of commitment and if you've decided that Jesus is going to be the leader of your life but you've not yet done that, if you want to give your heart to him then we encourage you to do that as we sing this song of